and welcome to the European Startup Show's March Women Series. In recognition of International Women's Day, I'm featuring a few amazing women entrepreneurs of Europe throughout the month of March. My guest today is Carolyn Noblanche, co-founder and CEO of the world's first virtual fertility startup called Epricity. Carolyn is an experienced entrepreneur who, before launching Epricity, co-founded mobile app Prelos at the age of 27, which she sold to the Swedish giant Doro AB in 2011. Carolyn has used her success to promote a truly diverse workforce with women making up four out of five of Epricity's C-suite. I'm delighted to have Carolyn on this show today and learn more about her journey. So tell me a little bit about your journey to finding Epricity, because I know that you've been an entrepreneur for a greater part of your life and you actually founded a mobile development company. So I'm really curious to understand how you went from mobile development company to Epricity. So Anita, it's true that uh, for me, entrepreneurship is something that has uh, I've done most of my life. Um, I actually created my first company aged uh, 27, and it was a company developing mobile apps. I created it, it was in 2003. So at the time, no one knew uh, what a mobile app was. And I remember very distinctly to have to explain for half an hour to my prospects and customers what I was uh, talking about when talking about a mobile app. Of course, then when the iPhone was launched, and the apps uh, became popular, it was much uh, easier. But in this company called uh, Prilos, we actually developed mobile apps for elderly care and for elderly people because we had to focus on the vertical at the time and developed it for eight years before I actually sold it to uh, Doro, which is a a mobile leader, global and uh, leader in uh, elderly, elderly mobile phones, sorry. And initially I thought, okay, I will just sell the company and I have a lockup period, but I actually experienced very much this complementary experience where I had to, as part of the uh, group management, as vice president of the company, I helped it grow uh, from 70 million euros when I entered to a bit more than 250 when I left with a mix of organic growth, um, by opening new countries, uh, developing new customers and actually uh, acquisitions. But I think that entrepreneur once, entrepreneur forever. So after five years, I really had this feeling, you know, in my body, in my fingers that I wanted the freedom again. I wanted to start from scratch. I wanted something that was my own. So I started to investigate a few topics. Uh, One of them was in civic tech. And then I joined actually the startup studio of AXA uh, called Kamet Ventures. And at Kamet, I had, uh, as an entrepreneur in residence, I told them, okay, I've done that in the past. I want to create another company in new technologies, but with a meaningful purpose. So I started to dig into healthcare and they offered me this freedom to actually look after several topics. And I fell in love with the fertility topic, which became uh, Apricity. Wow. Okay. We're obviously going to get more into Apricity, but I want to go back to your first venture, the mobile app. You were 27 when you created it. What motivated you to start a company at that young age? I don't think at 27, I was thinking about doing that. I think that more and more people now create that company at 27, but it's true that uh, I'm not any younger. And at the time, it was quite rare. I started my career in uh, large companies in telco, and I loved the um, uh, the sector. I loved uh, what was happening, that it was booming. It was a time, you know, when uh, it was uh, fantastic growth with a, a new feature, a new technology every year. So it was this moment when 
things were bubbling and I, yeah, I wanted to do something uh, uh, of my own. I think also that uh, I come from a family where my parents are a dentist and a lawyer. So they are self-employed and for mm. me it meant something, you know, to know that uh, you don't need to have a boss. And I think that also I'm a person who's really driven by freedom. For me, it's super important to feel that uh, I have the freedom to express myself, to build new things, to be creative. Uh, and as you can uh, hear, I guess I'm also a very passionate person. So uh, I don't like to be in a framework and to be told what to do and etc. It actually kind of... Uh, um, yeah, deters me from my from my goal, and I think that's all of this combination that uh, drove me to uh, to create Prilos. Plus, of course, the fact that I met a fantastic uh, co-founder at the time, and that we wanted to create something together. And we felt before a lot of other people that mobile apps would be uh, a big thing, maybe too too early. And that's also part of the success of entrepreneurs uh, is to have the right idea, but have it also at the right time and execute it perfectly. I think that on this one, uh, it was we, we felt uh, there was something, but we felt it uh, maybe a bit too early. Did you or your co-founder have any experience in mobile app development? Because it was quite new at that time, right? So I was more the business girl and he was more the tech guy. And he had some experience in uh, developing uh, services, but not in mobile apps. apps. He actually uh, trained himself and uh, figured out how, okay. how, how to do that. But we saw, because we were in the field of mobile services in general, I, 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 my previous experience was with a, a mobile agency and before that I was with a mobile operator. So we knew what kind of services we could actually uh, offer. And uh, we started um, uh, by saying, okay, the, the technology is amazing. What can we do with it? And because at the time, not all of the mobile phones were um, uh, equipped to download uh, applications, we started with a B2B sector where actually we could equip uh, a fleet of workers with the right um, mobile phone to actually uh, deliver them the app. Plus, uh, then looking at different verticals, we understood that there was a need in the field of elderly care, where you have a lot of people uh, taking care of our elderly uh, uh, parents and going to their place and they have to go from one place to another to perform different services. So there was a need of organization there and we felt that it was a good thing to actually equip them with a mobile phone at the time. It was quite new uh, to offer that as a benefit uh, by the company, but also delivering uh, much value in communicating with our employer to know what has to be done, also reporting how many hours had been um, worked, etc., etc. I can totally understand someone wanting to fund you now because you have a proven track record. But I keep thinking about you in 2003 at 27. You had a co-founder who had the technical expertise. You both were from telco field. So you knew something about mobile and mobile services. But in 2003, the European ecosystem was not as developed in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of funding. And both of you don't have any track record at that time. How did you go about raising funds to get your idea off the ground. Was that easy to do? What did you learn from that experience that maybe you took forward to Apricity? So first we started with uh, uh, love money, uh, friends and family funding us to get started. But then it was uh, very basic. It was actually going through a business angel round and then through VC. So 
by the time we actually uh, were in, in front of, let's say, professional investors, we already had a track record uh, with the company itself. We had some revenues. We had uh, developed the tech and, uh, and everything. So uh, to answer your question, what did I learn there? I, I learned plenty of things, of course, as you can, uh, you can guess. My first professional investor came at the seed stage and made me sign a contract, a shareholder agreement, where there was an option for him to reinvest the year after. And we had discussed it as a two-way option where he could exercise the option, but I could say no if I didn't want him to do that. And we had actually agreed on the terms. One year later, at the time when uh, actually uh, new investors uh, came in and uh, I had actually negotiated with them, uh, the value of the company had been multiplied by three. Uh, so it was a good deal for, for the seed investor. He said, okay, um, I want to exit, but before exiting, I want to actually use this option of mine to have a better, a bigger share uh, of the company. So I said, okay, but uh, as agreed, uh, I will decline this uh, offer because I want new money in the company. I don't want... Uh, uh, cash out. I want uh, the cash for the company. And uh, he told me, oh yeah, but you know, uh, at the last minute, actually, in the shareholder agreement, I have changed this part and now it's an option that I can, but you you can't decline. So it was a time when, you know, we didn't have the track changes in documents and he had changed after the 50 second version of the document. One thing at the final stage, and I remember I was with my husband in a love weekend in Roma and in the middle of the in the, of the sorry the antique uh, room, I was talking with him on the phone and saying, you know, actually what you're investing in in the company is a hamster actually running in the wheel, and the hamster is me. So if I feel that the deal is not fair, then I'm out. I don't want to work with people that are not fair, yeah. and for me it's not acceptable. So I told him either you actually sell what you have at good conditions, or if you want to ex actually exercise your option, I'm out. So, you know, I was, I don't know, probably uh, 29 at the time or something like that. So you grow much faster. And that's yeah. also a lesson you learn for uh, reading your contracts until the last minute and every page of the 150 pages of your shareholder agreement. Just an example. But, of course, there were many of them. But uh, Yep, that's amazing that at that age, you stood your ground and you did not buckle under the pressure that he had this contract with these terms. Yeah. So what happened eventually? So in the end, uh, that's what uh, happened. He just uh, sold the shares he already had in the company, made a very good return on investment with the investment, but didn't exercise the option. And I think I've been very firm, Anita, because... As an entrepreneur, you also know that uh, you put all of your effort, your energy, yeah. your sweat and blood in this uh, company. And uh, I know I never had this kind of experience ever again. People understand that more and more. But back to your question, which was back in 2003 or 2005, what has changed? I think that there is also much more professionalism on the investor side and a bit more of uh, the entrepreneur needs to be treated well because they are the, the reason why your company will succeed or, or fail. Absolutely. So that brings me to Apricity. Tell me why Apricity? Why did you decide to start a company in the IVF treatment space? 
So as you can hear, first, I'm a woman. Uh, so that's a topic which is dear to my heart because actually uh, that's a topic which where we help people having children. And on top of that, I didn't have any problem of infertility myself, but a lot of friends who have gone through that and I could see how difficult that was. So in terms of why, IVF has existed for 40 years and it's successful, but it's still a roller coaster of emotion and a very difficult journey uh, for couples and people going through uh, fertility treatments. So we wanted to say, okay, if we were to reinvent fertility treatments now, knowing what we know in uh, 2019 when we created, what would it look like, fertility treatment? And that would be something that would be more patient-centric, that would be something that would be more relying on new technology and, and more uh, tech-driven, and of course, that would leverage uh, the medical expertise in the field. So that's where we created uh, Apricity to actually disrupt fertility treatment, which today is a massive pain point. And as I said, I've always been driven by technology that has a meaningful purpose. So that's uh, spot on. But what's the what's the pain in the fertility treatment space today that Apricity is specifically addressing? What is it that couples that are trying to use IVF uh, fertility treatment are having a problem with? So if we talk about uh, fertility, first it's one in six couples will have trouble to conceive today. And very often we consider it's a niche market. It's not a niche market. It's actually growing by 10% a year. So as you can see, it's uh, very important. And it's not a woman topic only because actually you have... Uh, both male and female affected by infertility and actually the male infertility, which is caused by uh, the decline of quality in, uh, in sperm, is even bigger now in terms of reasons for uh, having difficulties to conceive than uh, female infertility. So it's a growing topic, it's uh, addressing uh, everyone. And uh, when you go through a fertility treatment today, it's uh, a lot of stress. It's also completely uh, takes over your life, you completely lose control of your life for 18 months. That's the average fertility journey. You will have to go during the treatment on average nine times to the clinic and you will have to pay £6,000 for each one of the cycles. So it's really a, a dreadful patient experience also because everything has been organized around the clinic constraints and, and doctor's constraints, which is understandable. But at Apricity, what we want is actually to maximize the chances of pregnancy for patients and to deliver a transparent, highly personalized fertility experience for each patient undergoing uh, treatment. So what we are is a virtual fertility clinic where you only have to go to the brick and mortar clinic twice. All of the rest is organized at home and around you by uh, Apricity. We also offer the support of the fertility advisor who's there on extended hours of support. And we offer the support of technology to make sure that you have the best protocol um, adherence, but also that uh, in the back end, our care team uh, takes all the decision and also streamlines their operations to be focused on uh, clinical care and on the patient and not on administrative tasks. So, yeah, in a, in a summary, that's our differentiation with the traditional um, experience of fertility treatment. When you started investigating this space and started this company, what was some of the biggest challenges in moving forward? 
first, I was not a fertility expert myself. As you know, I was coming from new technologies and that's where also I met uh, my co-founder, Andrew, uh, who has uh, 20 years of experience in the fertility space. So I think that uh, uh, the, the first challenge for me, uh, not for the company, but for me was to understand what was going on. We initially started with the idea of creating an IoT and an algorithm to help patients during the stimulation phase. And then we pivoted the idea because we realized that it was probably not where we could be the most um, uh, useful. So we pivoted to be an AI company. And by being an AI company, we soon realized that we wouldn't make a, a huge difference, or at least it wouldn't be in our control to make the difference for patients. And the only way to really uh, make a difference for patients in terms of success rates and in terms of experience was by being ourselves uh, a clinic of a new kind, of the next generation. But to, to do this uh, pivot was a bit of a bold statement at the time. There are challenges now in terms of execution, in terms of growing the company. But, uh, you know, to actually shape the idea and find what was the right angle to really make the, the biggest difference. Do you cover the entire fertility process for someone or do you only cover parts of it? No, so we actually cover from uh, diagnostic to the end of the treatment when the patients are, are pregnant. So what we sell are actually treatments. Uh, if you go to our website, you can be at the beginning where you don't know what's the problem. So we can offer you consultations and uh, diagnostic to understand uh, if there is a problem at all uh, and if there is one, what is the best treatment uh, for you. And then actually we will uh, uh, accompany you uh, throughout your, uh, your treatments. Okay. How do you measure success in a company like like yours? I think, Anita, the, the measure of our success is so obvious. It's babies. So first, I'm very proud that we launched in Q2 2019 and we already have 12 babies born. So as you can imagine, we have the coolest outcome uh, ever. Uh, we have now have uh, more than 16 patients who are pregnant. So of course, we measure our success in terms of uh, how many patients are pregnant. And we actually have much better success rate than the, the national average at the moment. So what is the national average and what is the percities? Do you have any stats that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So today the national average for a clinical pregnancy rate for people using their own eggs and because you have different categories of patients is 27%. And we are at 41% on average. So that's amazing. And we do that by uh, what I explained, uh, having patients which are less stressed, but also having the combination of working with some of the best clinics in uh, the UK. So we co work with uh, the Lister Clinic, with the uh, Manchester Fertility Clinic and some others. And uh, we, of course, rely on the excellence of our uh, partners, but it's also the way we actually deliver the care and with our care team supervising the treatment and optimizing each step of the treatment for our patients that we actually are uh, able to be uh, to be better. We not only measure uh, success with uh, babies and pregnancies, that's of course the most uh, important and most obvious, but we also look at uh, the satisfaction of our patients and that's super important for us. So we have different ways of uh, monitoring that, but that's really the two KPIs that we have uh, in front of our eyes at all times. 
Where all is a Presidy available? I'm French, as you can hear. We operate in the UK. So the, the company, uh, Apricity Fertility UK Limited, is selling treatments to UK uh, patients. But we have the ambition to actually grow this company much further, of course, in Europe and we hope globally. So we are we plan actually to, uh, to launch in Spain uh, next year. We wanted to do that this year, but because uh, of COVID, we have actually decided to, uh, to delay uh, a bit further uh, this project. But the model that we have built is actually a, a very scalable model. What would you need to do to be able to offer Pricity in other countries? Is there regulatory um, requirements? Is it different cultural issues? Is it that payment and how fertility treatments are paid via insurance or separate? So as you understand, our model is a, an hybrid model. Uh, it's not a pure tech model and it's not a pure operation model. It's actually the combination of both with a care team, with partners, local partners, and uh, all of that underpinned by uh, amazing technology. But when we enter into a country, we need actually to contract with uh, the best clinics in that country and to make sure we have the right uh, network of partners. That's one. We need, of course, to have a, a care team which speaks the language of the country. And so um, we have a, a bit of uh, operation ourselves. And as you mentioned, the field which is highly regulated, which is normal and good, uh, but there are differences uh, from one country to another, mostly in terms of what kind of treatment can be uh, accessed. Giving you an example, surrogacy is not authorized in uh, all countries or uh, pre-genetic pre uh, diagnostic screening is not uh, something which is uh, allowed in uh, all countries. And uh, you have also a question of how it's uh, reimbursed with uh, funding the fertility treatment and who's uh, entitled to partial payment of their fertility treatments. So if you look at different uh, European countries, for example, in France, uh, you have uh, the Sécurité Sociale, the equivalent of the NHS, uh, paying for four cycles for each woman before that. So we didn't start there because uh, uh, that's actually a, a, an additional difficulty uh, for us. The model works regulatory-wise in uh, all the European geographies, uh, we've made sure of that, but it uh, demands to actually uh, adapt in terms of operations. Do you have a sense of what percentage of the market share in UK you currently capture? At this stage, it's a, it's a minor market share because we uh, started our operations in, in uh, 2019, but we have treated uh, 300 patients in 2020. There are 70,000 cycles in the uh, in UK. And so we are still at the beginning of the journey, but the ambition is to actually capture 5% of market share in the UK and become one of the leaders of the market. I had a friend of mine who went through fertility and I know that it was very, very expensive for her to go through this. You know, I feel like people who do want to have their own babies should be able to and cost shouldn't be such a factor. But I'm, is this still something that's very much the privilege of the few that are rich that can afford to have this treatment? Or is this something that you are seeing becoming more affordable either through employee plans that now offer these type of benefits? What are you seeing as trends in fertility that hopefully are positive for people wanting to have kids? Being in the UK, the prices of treatments are much cheaper uh, than the ones in the US. 
And IVF will be a bit more than 6,000 pounds altogether in the UK, while it is $15,000 to $20,000 in the US. Okay, so first thing, it's a bit more affordable. And when you want to kid, uh, you want it more than anything. So we've met with patients who actually mortgage their house to uh, be able to, to do that. So it's not a question of class or etc. When you want to kid, you will do whatever, uh, borrow money or uh, to, to go there. So now there are good news. Good news is that with Apricity, first we offer price transparency because very often you look at the price and you think that it's £3,000, but then you don't know that you have to pay for the drugs. You don't know that you have a lot of add-ons and etc. So with Apricity, we give transparency on pricing and that's one of our key values to ensure that you know where you are. And of course, with better success rates, the objective is also that you can actually have less cycles and have a kid faster. You have better control of uh, when you will get pregnant altogether. We have also uh, started some partnerships with uh, corporate companies because actually there is an alignment of interest between employer and employee because when you're struggling to conceive, your employer will uh, actually observe that you will be absent more often. You have to go Mm -hmm. to the clinic, to the diagnostic, etc. So more absenteeism. A lot of productivity because you have so many things to do. Your mind is somewhere else. You have to to organize uh, all of this. And even sometimes you will quit your job uh, to uh, focus on this very important project of yours. So actually more and more employers are sensitive to that. And uh, even some of them cover fertility as an employee benefit as part of the personal medical uh, insurance that they offer their employees. And we are lucky enough to uh, work with uh, seven uh, large corporates uh, on this and that's growing uh, every day. Uh, So yeah, that's a really impressive uh, move in the market back to your question. And I think one of the obvious advantage, obviously, is the fact that you had AXA as a partner with the initial financing. Is that correct? Absolutely. So uh, we have been, uh, as I mentioned, incubated by Cam Adventures, which uh, was at the time the, um, the startup studio of AXA. And so we leveraged this, the synergies we could see with AXA. And we've been uh, lucky enough to work with AXA PPP or AXA Health uh, in the UK and to to have them to introduce us to some of their large uh, corporate customers to say, okay, this is what the amazing covers that we offer in, uh, in insurance uh, usually, but what about uh, having a fertility on top? And we know this company, Apricity, which does this and that. So going together was uh, the best intro possible. And I think that they are actually super happy also with uh, this cooperation. We talk regularly with with account manager uh, and directors of uh, AXA and uh, the the feedback is fantastic also for them. So is your model to go, is it mainly to go to corporates or is it to go direct to consumers? What's your current distribution? We we have uh, different routes to market. So we started by actually focusing on the egg donation market where we are very, very strong. We also have this corporate route, which I just described. And on top of that, uh, we sell directly to to consumers. But that's something that we started a bit later because we wanted first to establish our credibility as a a new player in the field and uh, as a next generation fertility clinic. But uh, to answer your question, it's uh, it's both. It's uh, cheese and dessert. Uh, You know, I'm hearing more and more of companies that are disrupting really traditional fields, especially in healthcare and wellness and things that are very personal. I know that trust would be a really big factor. Like if I'm going to, you know, spend my time, energy, money, I want to try and optimize my chance for success. 
And so I'd want to go to the best option in terms of my outcome. How did you go about establishing that trust? Is it because you are brought in by the fertility clinics or are you the one who is going first to the consumer and then recommending the clinic they go to because they're a partner? So it's, it's a second way. We are the one to actually work with patients, uh, investigate with them their chances of success, uh, their, uh, the problems they're facing, etc. And to, to actually uh, contract with them for a fertility treatment. And then we actually choose together which is the best clinic because we, we work uh, again with four amazing clinics and uh, we choose with the patient which clinic is the best suited for them given their age, given where they live, given their mm. reason for infertility, etc. So that's where we are. But you're right, there was a question uh, being a newcomer of establishing our credibility and this goes with, uh, as I mentioned, success rates. So that's not something we had uh, uh, to start yeah. with. So we had to actually prove our way uh, through and that's where we actually uh, had uh, these first customers in the uh, egg donation in with the corporate customers and we didn't start with a B2C it would have been too yeah. steep of a curve if you'd like but now that we have actually established these credentials it's uh, recognized then you have all of the word of mouth uh, happy patients uh, uh, recommend you and we make sure that uh, our patients uh, are satisfied and uh, that they, they can uh, actually uh, come back uh, we have uh, uh, 90% of our patients actually come back uh, with a priority for a second cycle if they need one that's uh, how we believe what is your brand and by the way uh, a priority is a very old English term which means the warmth of the sun in winter and that's exactly what we want to be, uh, you know, at dark times when you're facing infertility, it's uh, this ray of sun, the support of your fertility advisors, the support of the whole uh, Apricity organization, uh, that we want to be the, the ones uh, in the sun in winter. So you've done this now twice. What can you tell other entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs that might be listening to this podcast? What can you share with them in terms of you know, mistakes you've made and, and learnings from that. You shared a few already, but maybe anything else or just what does it take to become successful? I think that as a woman entrepreneur and as a woman in general, we tend to be a bit more shy. I remember my first company, I was a young uh, lady, a blonde blue eyes on top of that. So <laughs> you can imagine uh, when entering in the in a room with uh, my sales director, who was a 50 years old man, people were talking to him, basically. I, I think that there is a, a question of posture and uh, of not excusing ourselves for, uh, for being there. You have every right to be where you are. Uh, but then I, I, I think that a piece of advice I would like to share, because also as women, we have also always this question about uh, work-life balance. What about my couple? What about my kids? Of course, men also, but uh, we are the ones to, uh, to be pregnant uh, and uh, etc. So I remember that uh, during my first um, uh, startup, I actually wanted to have kids, but I was like, no, it's not the right moment. We're raising funds. And in the end, I had a friend who gave me, gave me that piece of advice and I will share it. She told me, you know, there are mom, which are like the hen mom, uh, the chicken. Okay. And they will cuddle their little, uh, uh, little babies. And uh, you have the duck mom that's the one that will walk and the ducklings are just uh, following her in a V shape and she just looks back and sees if one of them is in trouble, she will go. But otherwise, she's just leading the way and showing by uh, leading by example. 
And I thought it was such a, a, a beautiful metaphor that actually I felt yeah. pregnant probably the week after. <laughs> and and I, had, I had two kids while being an entrepreneur. Of course, it has been tiring and I will not deny that. You know, both times I actually worked until the very end. And my last call was at seven in the evening and I gave birth at seven in the morning. And then I had to go back one or two weeks after my babies were born. Uh, but now they are 11 and 15. They are perfect and uh, just uh, very uh, balanced. Uh, they love me and they tell me they love me all the time. So uh, yeah, the piece of advice I would like to share, especially with women entrepreneurs, is, uh, you know, it, it's uh, never the right time to have a baby. Just go for it. That's so beautiful, Carolyn. And I think we need to hear this. I have two kids, 12 and 16, a year older than both your kids. And I agree. I think working and being a working mom has made my children be more independent at an earlier age. And it's probably a good thing for them. We've been told as women not to fall pregnant. You know, we haven't been told how to fall pregnant, how to get kids. So true. So it's important. It's important also to consider that we have a biological clock, uh, even if uh, we tend to forget about that. And it's never the right moment. Could you give maybe any practical advice on how to balance being this CEO and working woman with having a family and, and children. Have you done anything in terms of just practical day-to-day stuff that you feel you can share that can help other people to manage that balance? Uh, first, I, I think I married the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have a, a perfect husband, so no one to steal him from me. Uh, he's amazing and, and extremely supportive. Then I think that for me, what has always been super important is to keep moments. So I work a lot during the week, but I don't work at weekends if I can avoid. And most of the time I manage to do that. So I can work extremely late at uh, evenings and nights uh, during weekdays. But I really try to keep uh, weekends for, for my family and for my friends. And then I also think that there is a piece of advice is that it's important that your family goes well, that your partner and your couple goes well. But I think it's also important that you are going well. So mm-hmm. what is the most difficult part for me is actually to find time for myself. And, uh, you know, for example, now I, I practice yoga, I do a bit of meditation. No surprise, I think a lot of people do. Uh, yeah. But it, it has been the hardest part for me. It's uh, thinking of others before uh, myself. I tended to forget that I too have uh, needs. It's another thing that I think all women tend to do. We tend to put others and nurture and care for others because that's maybe the way we are or maybe we've taught that and not as much ourselves. And so a, a, a practical advice on that is that uh, we have agreed with my husband that each one of us, we have the right of one week of holiday by ourselves within a year. So actually he likes uh, climbing mountains and I don't like that. So he <laughs> goes and uh, I go and do some uh, yoga and meditation. He doesn't like that. Of course, during the week, finding uh, this time for, for oneself is important, but it can be also a practical advice. But yeah. a week of holiday uh, just for you. I think that's really good advice. Can I just go back one minute to what you said about your first company? And your, I didn't know that your co-founder was so much older than you. And I can see I can see how both of you would be walking into meetings and you're sitting there young, first of all, then woman, then blonde hair, blue eyed. How did you gain that respect in, given 
not only that you're young and you're starting your first company, but you are with a co-founder who has, who's a guy who's older, has more gravitas. How did you, in that situation, gain your own respect and equality? So Anita, it was not my co-founder. That was uh, oh. more age than me. The co- my co-founder was the same age. Uh, ah, okay, okay. But it was my sales director, uh, an employee of ours uh, who was uh, older than me. But this being said, uh, the question is the same, is how to actually take your, your space in the room and I don't know if you've seen this uh, fantastic TV series uh, from the Denmark, which is called uh, Borgen, where you have a woman becoming a prime minister and actually she enters in a room and wants to see um, people from the uh, opposition. And one of them actually says, if you want to, to settle uh, down in the role, you have to sit at the opposite of the, of the table. And at the head of act, the table. Yeah, and, and to act like a prime minister. There is a question of uh, attitude. Then I think that like a lot of women, I try to compensate by hard work and by uh, actually showing what I was capable of and by proving that I'm clever, I'm, uh, I have gravitas um, yeah. and I'm actually yeah, some, someone reliable and delivering. So that's uh, by hard work. Yeah. So behind the scene, it's hard work, but maybe you also need to do a little bit of fake it to make it. Yeah. I don't think that it's faking it. It's just that you have to understand the codes and act, act by the codes. So for a long time, for example, I used to dress with pants and a jacket and I would never wear a dress. You know, uh, mm. it was probably stupid. Uh, I also uh, wore glasses for uh, for a long time uh, because actually uh, I looked a bit older with glasses. <laughs> it's not something where you fake it. It's just that you look at uh, around you in the table, you see you are the only woman uh, in the world of men and especially in new technology. Uh, it's, it's a case. Yeah. So I think that there is part of it, which is actually to... Uh, to look at these codes and to respect these codes. And then the other thing is to give back. As for me, I make a point also to have been a tech company, but to have equality in uh, gender in, in the company. So today, I'm, that's one of my pride with uh, Avristi. We're 50-50 in terms of uh, men and, uh, and women. So how do, you, how do you do that? Is it just that you have widened the pool so that you have a lot more women at the top of the funnel in the recruiting process? What, how have you done that gender balance? I'm sure a lot of companies are struggling with that. I made it clear to everyone that I wanted uh, as many women as men. So I, I, every time I have, the, 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 sometimes it's funny, you know, people make fun of me saying, oh, girl power again and etc. But it's by repeating your message that for you it's important to have equality and not uh, one gender uh, surpassing the other, but uh, just uh, equality and then actually yeah. I know uh, my uh, chief technical officer, he tells me, uh, okay, uh, it's more difficult to find um, uh, women uh, developers uh, and coding. So he, say, he gives that as a criteria to uh, recruitment agency saying, uh, I would like to see uh, as many female candidates and uh, male candidates. So, and he's a guy and he's uh, extremely yep. open to all of that. And then if he doesn't succeed and if the candidate, the, the, the guy is better, we'll of course hire uh, uh, the guy. But uh, it's to spread the word uh, that this is important within the company, with our suppliers. Yeah, I, I, that's again, really nice. It's being very deliberate about making sure that that's something that you are 
giving focus to and you're making it a priority. Mm -hmm. It's not about the selection at the end, but right from the beginning, you're putting that goalpost as we want to have equality in gender. Okay. We've come almost to the end of our um, podcast, but I have this rapid round where I ask you just questions and one word or, or a few phrases to Tell me what, what you think would be really appreciated. I know you in the beginning, you told me you, re, you listen to a lot of audiobooks and you like books. Could you maybe recommend either fiction or nonfiction, a few books that you, that you feel really made an impression on you or made an impact to you? Books. I'm a big fan of American novels. I love uh, all of the books of Jim Harrison, who died a few years ago and I was desperate. So I would recommend Dalva by Jim Harrison. Amazing. All of the Toni Morrison uh, books. And uh, lately, one I have really enjoyed, there are two actually. One is um, My Absolute Darling, uh, which is uh, an amazing novel. And the uh, latest one is uh, Betty. I think the writer is called Tiffany McDaniel, and that's her first novel. And yeah, amazing. Lovely. I, I haven't read those, so I will look them up. What about your favorite European city? Uh, Roma. Roma. Why? Because I love Italy and... Uh, how they enjoy life. As a French person, good cooking is uh, super important. I love the pasta and everything. It's uh, warm usually and I love the sun. And yeah, there is uh, just uh, all of these beautiful buildings uh, all around. So Roma. And what about a, a favorite quote? I'll tell you what I, I tell the team all the time. If you don't try, you don't succeed. So that's okay. for me super important. There are always good reasons not to do something, but try it. And maybe you will be lucky and it will work. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn, for a, a wonderful conversation. Very inspiring. And I wish you all the best with the Pricity. And I hope a lot of people who are looking to have children look at Pricity as an option for them. Thank you for being thank on my show. Thank you, Anita. It was a great conversation. Enjoy it. Thank you again. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.